Good morning. It's Thursday, the 19th of October, and this is Govind Raj, Ethi Raj, coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes for the day. U.S. President Joe Biden's visit to Israel fails to calm fears after the Gaza hospital attack. Oil jumps to $93 a barrel. J.P. Morgan bets on India's manufacturing story says it will be the third largest economy in 2030. It's three months since rice exports were banned. Have the outcomes been achieved? With Siraj Hussain, former Agriculture Secretary to the Government of India. IT giant TCS mandates a dress code. Do companies need one? With Rajneesh Singh, managing partner of Simply HR Solutions. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. President Biden's Israel trip fails to calm markets. US President Joe Biden's arrival in Israel early Wednesday and meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu did little to calm markets, particularly oil which shot up after a missile strike tore apart a hospital in Gaza and killed hundreds. Brent futures rose 3% to trade near $93 a barrel and Iran's foreign minister called for a full and immediate boycott of Israel by Muslim countries including an oil embargo on the country. The oil embargo in itself is not the trigger as much as the fear of hostilities in the region escalating and more countries getting drawn in. Leaders of Jordan, Egypt and the Palestinian Authority cancelled the summit with US President Joe Biden making his job in securing peace in the region more difficult. Not surprisingly, stocks back home saw selling pressure even as bond yields rose. The BSE Sensex dropped 551 points to close at 65,877 and the Nifty 50 closed 141 points down at 19,671. The bulls or at least the bullish reports are back. This time it was JP Morgan again whose managing director of Asia Pacific Equity Research James Sullivan said that India would become the world's third largest economy by 2027 with its gross domestic product or GDP more than doubling to 7 trillion dollars by 2030. He told CNBC TV18 that he saw very strong long-term tactical drivers that would make India a key overweight from a structural perspective. He said Importantly that the manufacturing contribution to India's GDP may rise to nearly 25% from 17% and exports would more than double to over a trillion dollars. According to him from a longer term perspective JP Morgan saw massive changes in the overall structure of the Indian economy which presented clear opportunities for sector selection within what they thought would be a strong overall market. Last month if you remember or if you don't jp morgan announced that indian government bonds would be part of its global bond index emerging markets or gbiem global index suite from june 2024 the quantum of flows potentially thanks to this development could be 24 billion dollars over the year after june 2024 jpm government bond index has assets under management of about 200 billion dollars It's result season as we told you so earlier and it continues IT major Wipro posted a small increase of 0.1% in its profits for the second quarter of the current financial year to about 2667 crores year on year the company told exchanges now Wipro's results are in keeping with the general gloominess in Indian IT reeling after the slowdown in spending in major markets of United States and Europe Wipro's gross revenue came in at about 22,520 crores for the second quarter, a decrease again of about 0.1% to 
compared to the same quarter last year. Net income was at about 2,650 crore, again a small decrease, but this time only 0.5%. The point of course being that it's a decrease in all these areas. Thierry Delaporte, CEO and Managing Director of Wipro, said training and reskilling its people was a key focus for the company for an AI-driven future. Importantly, and perhaps interestingly, Wipro's headcount declined too for the fourth consecutive quarter, specifically ending the September quarter with about 5,000 fewer employees than in the previous quarter. With this, the company's headcount stands at about 244,000, said Money Control. The IT industry is reporting a decrease in net headcount with a cumulative decline of over 16,000 employees across TCS, Infosys and HCL Tech. Now, the total headcount for all these organizations will be over a million. But the point is that this is a decline, perhaps for the first time in a very long time and therefore bears mentioning. Amongst these, at this point, Infosys showed the maximum reduction with a net headcount decline of 7,530. Remember, it's a net headcount decline, which means more people are leaving or have been asked to leave than are being hired. We have more on the IT industry and a new dress code for TCS that's coming up shortly. Meanwhile, Bajaj Auto reported brighter results, posting a standalone net profit for the quarter ended September at about 1,836 crores which is importantly 20% over the same quarter last year. Revenue from operations rose 6% year-on-year to 10,777 crores. And it said that the revenue growth was driven by, importantly, double-digit volume growth with strong domestic sales as well as improving export numbers. Margin for the quarter came in at about 20% thanks to better realization and a richer product mix, which means usually higher CC bikes costing more all of which made up for a drag on investments in electric scooters. How have the ban on rice exports panned out? It's almost three months since India banned the export of non-Basmati rice. India controlled roughly 40% of global rice trade in 2022 and the move affected many countries, including diaspora, who are used to this particular form of Indian rice. The government also set a floor price for basmati exports, which is the more flavorful rice, at $1,200 a ton in order to prevent non-basmati rice being passed off at lower prices. The government had banned exports of broken rice, another category of rice, last year itself. The government has since allowed exports of non-basmati rice to some countries on a country-to-country basis like the United Arab Emirates, Singapore and Bhutan. One clear objective of the ban in July was obviously to rein in potentially shooting prices thanks in turn to uncertain monsoons and expected higher demand in the festival season. So, three months on, has that rice ban specifically or generally achieved its objectives and what are the takeaways from a policy and policy prescription point of view as much as our understanding of it? I reached out to Siraj Hussain, former Agriculture Secretary to the Government of India and columnist on agricultural issues with several publications and began by asking him what we had achieved with this current export ban strategy. It is still very early days to know basically what is going to happen in this Harif marketing year, which began on 1st of October. Even though the area under rice is more than the normal area, about 1 million hectares more, the normal area is 40 million hectares, and this year the sown area is about 41 million hectares. So, as far as the sowing is concerned, it looks good, but we do not really know the impact of the deficient and erratic rainfall, especially in August. And the government has not come out with the first advance estimate. Normally, 
in most of the years it has been released on 21st or 22nd of september so the estimate is not known which means that we do not know what is the government's estimate of rice production having said this the usda estimate for this year which was issued by them in september is about 132 million tons against 136 million tons produced last year as per the government estimate so the usda is estimating lower and i think the government estimate is also going to be lower which means that the ban is unlikely to be lifted what is usda mr hussain us department of agriculture our figures are sourced from the us department of agriculture is what you're saying no 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 the government of india issues its own estimates but us they have a very large agricultural economic service so in all the important countries they have agriculture attaches and experts you know local experts who are very experienced they go to the field they make their own assessment about the crop yield production disease pest attack etc so that is how for 23 24 the us department of agriculture has estimated production to be 132 million tons the indian departments of agriculture estimate is not yet released so we do not know what is going to be their estimate right one of the original objectives was obviously to keep prices down ahead of festival season ahead of other events like local elections and so on so has that objective been achieved and if so to what extent that objective has not quite been achieved but i think we cannot fault the government policy for that and the reason is that the government was releasing a lot of rice under pradhan mantri gareeb kalyan amni yojana during the covid-19 pandemic and when the wheat procurement last year was much lower than the requirement only about 18 million tons the government increased the allocation of rice even in wheat producing states so for example up was getting you know much more rice than wheat and the card holders were getting rice so several reports have suggested that a lot of this rice was leaking into the system and that was also keeping the prices low that may have been keeping the prices low so since that leakage is not there this year maybe that is one reason why the prices have not really come down but you know if this ban was there then we can surmise that the prices would have been even higher okay that's good to hear and last question as going by what we know in terms of data and the outcomes that have been achieved so far what's your prognosis for the rest of the calendar year at least Yes I think in case of rice there are not many options before the government it is not possible to import rice and as we have noted the government has not even reduced the export price of basmati rice the government has retained it at 1200 dollars per ton which is considered very high by the trade and it seems that in Punjab in several mandis the basmati exporters are not purchasing rice having said this i must add something to the program on wheat which you broadcasted today you know the government's food processing policy export agricultural export policy was issued a couple of years back in which the government committed that it will not restrict the export of processed food and organic products organic food items and still the government restricted ban the export of wheat data and wheat products so that went against the policy i think it was not a prudent decision because we used to export only 3 or 4 lakh tons of atta made from wheat and the markets the consumers in those countries singapore middle east etc are now taking wheat atta made from australian wheat or other wheat sourced from other countries 
Right. And this is something that also spoken to someone from the exporters side and ITC being one of them, and which of course has been affected by the fact that they've not been able to export their processed data. So is there any comparison between rice and wheat since you brought up wheat in the way we've, let's say, formulated our responses? Or do you find there is consistency in both? Well, there is consistency in both, even though we always thought that India is hugely surplus in rice. And now this almost blanket ban has brought into the fact the reality that India's surpluses of agricultural products are marginal. And two years of adverse climatic events have brought that to light. Right. Mr. Hussain, thank you so much for joining me. The sugar ban comes into force. We spoke of wheat prices going up yesterday, the ban on wheat exports and of course rice exports. And now we are learning as we've been discussing and to some extent speculating that restrictions on sugar exports will extend beyond October. Sugar prices in India are near a seven year high and production is forecast to drop about 3% to 31.7 million tons in the 23-24 year because of patchy monsoon rains in top cane-growing states Maharashtra and Karnataka, according to Reuters. India is the second largest producer of sugar in the world and is trying to control, as in other commodities, prices at this time by increasing supplies. Exports of raw sugar, white sugar, refined sugar and organic sugar under some codes would be restricted beyond October, according to a notification issued on Wednesday by the government. India's sugar export restrictions have been in place for the past two years and in this time, India has allocated export quotas to mills. In the last season that ended on September 30th, India allowed mills to export only about 6 million tonnes after permitting them to sell a record 11 million tonnes in 21-22, according to Reuters. The exports restriction was expected instead of the usual one-year limit. This time, the government has imposed an indefinite export restriction, a Mumbai dealer told Reuters. Meanwhile, the government last evening put out total horticulture production numbers for 22-23, estimated to be about 352 million tonnes, an increase of about 4.7 million tonnes as compared to 21-22. Meanwhile, Money Control is reporting that the final estimates for major crops for 22-23, released by the Department of Agriculture and Farmers' Welfare, put total production of food grain at a record 329 million tonnes, that's higher by approximately 14 million tonnes compared to 21-22. Total rice production was estimated about 135 million tons, a record higher by 6.2 million tons. Wheat was estimated at 110 million tons, higher by 2.8 million tons. Now, what all of this means for prices and also whether if exports could be eased is something that we will come back to in a couple of days. Switching gears, tracks and clothes. Tata Consultancy Services has ended work from home for most of its employees, making it mandatory for them to show up in office five days a week. Now, asking people to show up in office when they may not have seen the face of one is obviously one part of the challenge. Or is it something else? TCS has now asked all employees to follow its dress code while working from office, according to a mail seen by the core report. This is key to creating the right impact with stakeholders globally. The dress code policy gives clear guidance on the right attire while carrying out official responsibilities and duties, according to that mail. It also said that a large number of associates have joined us in the last two years and have been working in a virtual or hybrid mode. And it is our responsibility to ensure that they are well integrated, 
working from the office is a key to internalize TCS values and the TCS way the mail said. Now, there are three categories which go into pretty minute detail as to what can be worn and not. On Monday to Thursday, business casuals, which include formal full-sleeved shirts to saris and salwars or local attire, depending on the gender. Footwear is also prescribed, which includes formal shoes, flats and heels. Ties are optional. T-shirts, jeans and sports shoes, sneakers are not allowed on Monday to Thursday. Shorts and half pants, kurtas and mini skirts are not allowed on any day. Formal wear and client visits involving TCS employees outside are clearly defined are quite simply formal. I reached out to Rajneesh Singh, managing partner at Simply HR Solutions, who has led group human resource functions in several large Indian and global multinational organizations. And I began by asking him how he was reading this new HR diktat. It definitely is not new, honestly. Definitely seen it in organizations which are definitely very, very particular on this matter. And specifically, having worked for a large multinational in my life, my career, I did see something similar to that, where very clearly it is spelled out what works on the weekdays and what works on a Friday. And with as much detailing. But at the same time, I think one has also seen companies where things are especially related to this kind of a policy. It's it's fairly left to the individual to be responsible as far as their attire is concerned. So it really depends industry to industry what kind of business you are in. And particularly for folks who are client-facing, who go out for meetings, the dress codes, you know, the norms are fairly stricter compared to people who are in the back end and who are non-client-facing. But this seems to be a fairly broad-based directive, isn't it? Correct. I would definitely agree with that, that this definitely has taken it a bit too much into details and very granular. Perhaps it could have been far more crisper and kept some room for the way, probably, you know, again, being TCS, I'm surprised because that kind of industry, you find so many young kids wearing all kinds of clothes and that has never been really pointed out. So I'm definitely surprised that a company like TCS is definitely taking it up so very seriously. Right. And one of the things I think they're saying is that basically a lot of people have joined in the last couple of years and obviously they were all working from home and many of them perhaps have never even seen an office in that sense because they're fresh out of college and so on. And this is the first time they're entering one. So could that be a reason and could this also be therefore be the reason for similar actions by other companies? I wouldn't really attribute it to the pandemic or COVID kind of situation. Uh, Perhaps, yes, probably to set things a bit in the context that we are back to office and back to a bit of a formal setting is what they're trying to convey. That, you know, there are certain norms to be adhered to and you can't be really operating as if you're operating from home, be in casuals and things like that. So probably somewhere certain norms is what they're just trying to convey. But like I said earlier, I think it's gone too much into details and that could have been avoided, honestly. Right. Yeah. And they have separate guidelines for formal events and client visits as well. So when you look around you, Rajneesh, I mean, you've worked in media, so which is obviously a more informal structure. This is relatively formal, but these are all broadly knowledge workers. What's your sense? I mean, where are we today in terms of what young people want to wear or not want to wear? And to what extent do organizations have the ability and the leeway to impose 
particularly with this generation and i have seen organizations where there was a certain uniform kind of a culture they have disbanded that also to allow people to be themselves where won't they feel more convenient wearing i've heard about airlines where people have been making very major uh, shifts and changes in the whole dress code policy hotels for example there are organizations there are industries which are being very very mindful of how the younger workforce wants to kind of carry themselves in an organization what kind of attire they want to wear uh, there's a large amount of flexibility which which one sees all around and so therefore this definitely comes in as a bit of a diktat and i don't think govind this would really set alarm bells going into other organizations and people really adopting it i think most of the organizations do have it and they over a period of time they've been fairly you know moving with the times and really getting to be more flexible right rajneesh thank you so much for joining me thank you very much govind incidentally a tcs senior employee i reached out to told me that they always had a dress code it was enforced even earlier but now he says that given people are coming back to office they've started to enforce it like in the past he also says that when he joined tcs in the 90s he had to wear a tie he also added that he doesn't feel a dress code really makes sense but he would expect his team to dress neatly and to maintain general hygiene he pointed out for example that of course different cities in india too and of course internationally dress differently and enforce differently in germany for example german managers used to send them back home if they were not wearing a suit wilma the new aircraft boarding sequence speaking about diktats though of a different kind here is something that frequent travelers may like to hear later this month united airlines which flies in the united states and connects many destinations from there to the world will implement a boarding process that puts window seat passengers in economy on the plane ahead of their peers in the middle and aisle seats according to an internal memo obtained and seen by the washington post so which means if you are in the window seat in economy you will board first via a boarding group that will be assigned to you and will obviously show up on your boarding pass united will apparently still use a pre-boarding system for certain customers such as those with disabilities unaccompanied minors and active duty military the washington post says first class and business class passengers will follow then window exit row seats and non-revenue seat passengers will also board followed by middle and aisle The last boarding group is reserved or will be reserved for basic economy on domestic flights as well as those who don't have a boarding group on their pass according to that memo this apparently or all of this will save the airline up to 2 minutes of boarding time which of course might seem like a small number to you but i can assure you it's a long time given that a single aircraft will do several flights and turnarounds to different destinations in a day Now, United first unveiled the Wilma, which stands for Window Middle Aisle Boarding System in 2017, but had paused it and has now resumed with added technology. So now, do we need something similar in India? I think the answer is yes, but we also need standardization because it usually takes long for airlines to herd passengers into the sections they should be standing in. This is usually compounded by the fact that many passengers except on some high intensity sectors like mumbai delhi and bangalore and between them are not frequent flyers moreover different airlines have different boarding systems indigo which is the largest has a different boarding system from let's say vistara also vistara is a full service airline and they call out their premium passengers first as most such airlines would or should 
Nevertheless, United's approach or experiment is worth watching. That's it for me then. Have a great day ahead. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening. Listening.